Today's reading is Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 to 15. It can be found on page 1089 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the face as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather on, than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your sinful nature was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing, triumphing over them by the cross. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our God of grace, as we um, come into this place uh, today, we come from all different kinds of places in our spiritual journeys. We may have had a week or a month or a year that has been one of pain, difficulty, unexpected events. We may be going through something right now that, uh, that it hurts and we long for healing perhaps, or for a message or a voice or a one clear word that says you care and you are present. Or maybe we sit here and we're, we had a, something that felt active and alive and vibrant at one time, a connection with you of some sort, and we wonder if we'll ever get back there because it's just not like that anymore. We wonder if it's our fault. We wonder if we really should be sitting here at all, if it's worth it. Um, others of us, uh, sometimes, you know, we go through a, a period, some of us perhaps, where you've been good and clearly answering prayers, and we are thankful. We have a faith that feels a little bit convinced, and we hope that the next challenge we face, we can remember how good you have been. But we're in all kinds of places, really, and um, the truth is, as we sit here, what we don't always want to admit is that we're all in the same boat in one universal way. We're all more of a mess than we care to admit. And then this, these, the pages of this big, grand story that we're opening up today, it shouts out to us, speaks to us, and tells us that you move towards broken and messy lives, and you take the mess even on yourself, and you did so through your son on the cross. So 
Help us to know what's true because of that. Help us to know that even though we're a mess, that we're more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever imagined. And would you now meet us through that kind of grace as we listen for your voice. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, what makes you feel alive? I almost wondered if someone would answer just out loud. Uh, what makes you feel alive? You know, summertime is a time where we tend to plug a few things into our calendar that we think of as those kinds of, kinds of things, you know, that revive us. Lisa and I found ourselves, my wife Lisa and I and our three kids were in the car coming back from going to the beach actually on Friday, and we found ourselves in um, this thoroughfare of people we didn't, basically, we didn't plan well. We were on the freeway, I-80, coming out of the Bay Area at about 6 or 7 o'clock. And, uh, you know, all around us are these, these evidences of people going to get revived and feel alive again, right? These, these SUVs and cars and pickups with camping gear and with um, lots and lots of mountain bikes. And they're all on their way you know, to the mountains to feel alive. What makes you feel alive? I talked to somebody this week who they put into their calendar and they kind of saved up to it as a family. They saved for it. They looked forward to it. A whole month that they just spent in Hawaii. A month. I thought, well, that is bold and brave, you know, pleasure-seeking. And most of us hear that. We go, yes, I need that, right? <laughs> You're going to do that someday. But, you know, what, what, what my friend said to me was basically, and then like those last three days were just dread, Right? Returning back to the daily grind, the daily rhythms, the, all that stuff. You know, summer does come to an end and our trips come to an end. My friend David and I, he's also a pastor, and once a uh, summer and sometimes once, once in the fall or winter or spring, we'll go on an outing, like a prayer retreat kind of thing. So he and I are both pastors, we're good friends, and we'll go out in the mountains and we'll split up and find a quiet place and come back together later in the day and kind of share what we're learning, share what, you know, it's just a great recharging time, and it's a lot of prayer and scripture and readings. Well, we went on one of these a couple, couple weeks ago, and we discovered this place that it turns out we didn't do a whole lot of reading and a whole lot of praying because we found this, like, Garden of Eden oasis kind of place. We, we biked a little bit, hiked a little bit, ended up down by this Yuba River place up by Nevada City, and we just found this place where the the rocky waters turned into this, like, 15, 20-foot pool, and granite rocks, like, kind of just, you know, on both sides, up 15, 20 feet, and we're doing backflips off these things. I'm sorry. We weren't doing a lot of reading, you know, and we, once we discovered it, we're like, yes, and we did a whole different kind of praying that day. But eventually, you know, we had to look at our watch and go, I mean, there's no one around. It was just amazing, and we're swimming with, uh, you know, foot and a half trout just around us look curious about who we are you know what we're doing in their pond um, but we had to pack up our stuff and we had to get in the car and we had to re-enter you know sacramento freeway gridlock and back to the daily life so you know vacations end diving off boulders ends camping trips end and we go back to our interesting what we call it we go back to our livelihood <laughs> You know, we go from something that supposedly makes us feel alive, we go back to our livelihood, which often is the thing we do to 
make ends meet, and it doesn't necessarily make us feel alive. And these daily rhythms and events of daily life, they end up feeling like they get in the way of us feeling alive. And here we are again looking for the next new solution to get back to feeling alive again. And that's a lot of our rhythm and routine when it comes to refueling our souls in a sense. Well, the Bible, you know, the Bible, when it describes us, when it talks about us and and us being alive, there's some great lofty language. There's Genesis 1 saying, you're made in the image of God. There's Psalm 8 saying, he made us a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned us with glory and honor. But there's also this persistence, really, to speak about our condition, not just as alive, but also some deadness and um, even the word decay is used there's like a also along with all that lofty stuff there's um, there's a sort of a rottenness there's a deep problem spiritually that's going on and uh, I got to watch this episode of I had never seen this show and watch this episode of hoarders anybody seen hoarders um, fascinating show I don't know how many of these episodes I could watch they kind of seems like a formula that it would all be the same but but anyway, I, so I watched this show, and in this scene, this psychologist is in the living room with this woman who has this hoarding problem, and, you know, they're standing around all the mess. And he started to say something. At first, I almost thought it was like a sarcastic joke, the way he was saying it, so in such basic terms. He said, you know, I'm noticing a smell. And there are flies in this room. Usually, he said, I mean, really, this is how he said, usually, when there's a smell and there's flies, there's something rotten. And then he looked at her and he said, is there something rotten in this room? <laughs> and, I, you know, I, I, wanted to, I was just thinking, no way, this is, he's being sarcastic. But no, she said, no. No, there's, there's, there's something in the kitchen. There's some apples that have gone bad. And then, he, and then he just, you know, he stays in the same place. And he just looks down and he goes, now what about that? You know, it's like this mush of something that has flies all over it. You know. Now what about that? Is that rotten? And she looked at it and then she said, oh yeah, that. And you know, that's such and such from, you know, such and such a time. And he said, and, and what's that? And she said, oh yeah, that. That's, that is something rotten. That's uh, such and such. And I thought, what a picture in a sense of, you know, where we can end up spiritually speaking. We sort of becoming comfortable with the rotten things or the deadness in our life. And moving on, like I think in the, sh- the show Hoarder is often the case, moving on to the next purchase or the next thing that's interested in, in getting a certain comfort level, just kind of going, no, no, there's nothing in here. There's nothing rotten here. And, and in a sense, someone needing to, in our life perhaps, say, in, in community, with the help of Scripture and prayer, perhaps say, no, what about that? Is that something rotten? I just saw all these parallels as I as I um, as I watched that show, and we don't always need someone else to point it out to us. You know, a lot of times we we go through things, we go through uh, a relationship problem, and we say, "Oh, I'm here again with another person. This hurts. I don't like how this feels, and it's, it seems to be a recurring thing. What's going on?" I find myself unable to forgive. I just can't get past this thing and reconcile what's wrong. Why can't I? This is no fun. I've got this um, ongoing problem of, of gossip, and I just can't 
can't get a handle on talking about other people behind their back, or I've got this substance addiction, or a shopping addiction, or something that is repetitive, and why am I here again? In a sense, you come to saying, this stinks, and maybe something needs to be done about it. The Bible <coughs> portrays the situation as basically there's this, this sort of a spiritual death that sticks to you, and no amount of you know, going to the mountains and doing yoga, no amount of travel, no amount of increasing your standard of living is, is going to be able to peel off the, the death sticking to you, in a sense. I, uh, we had this horrible, horrible smell in our backyard this summer. Um, you know, we have a big backyard, and every once in a while, you know, you get one of these smells. It's the, it's the furry, feathery creature smell, you know? It's not with us anymore. And you've got to find that. You've got to locate this thing and get rid of it because it smells and it lingers. You know it's going to linger for four or five days. Um, well, this, we can find it. And it, it lasted like three and a half, four weeks um, right outside our back door and looking everywhere, you know. Where is it? Where is this coming from? And eventually, you know, it was so bad that I just had to do this extreme level of, of cleaning areas underneath things I've never cleaned under before. You know, it was kind of under my deck and had to go through all this because it was like enough already. Never found what it was, but the smell did go away. I don't know what happened. But imagine that I come inside, you know, the house one day on about week two of this, and I say to everyone, I've got, I've got it figured out. I know what we're going to do. Oh, you've, you found what's causing the smell? No, 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 no. See, I think it's under the deck, and I'm, we're going to build a new deck, a bigger one, over top of the old one. Yeah? And someone would say, and my wife would say, um... Yeah, I, I think that's really going to deal with the smell. No, 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 I'd say. I, I think what we, we'll have a bigger space then, and I saw a jacuzzi at the state fair, you know, at, at Cal Expo, and, and I have my eye on this jacuzzi, and so we'll have more room, and we'll put that right on the new deck, and then, the, you know, the jets will be massaging us, and in that relaxation, luxury, reviving kind of place, we won't even care what it smells like. And maybe I'll even, uh, you know... Just the, the jacuzzi jets will massage me to sleep and I'll drown in it and won't have to smell it again. In a sense, I say that for a reason, in a sense, that's what we do spiritually in our lives. And the Apostle Paul, as he's writing to this New Testament church, he says in verse 8 something very interesting, basically describing exactly that kind of thing we do spiritually. And he says... See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. In a sense, something that sounds really good and really reviving and, oh, you need to put, add this on to things. He says, be aware of your tendency to go there and how it doesn't follow through. Warren Wearsby was a writer who wrote in Christianity Today, and he said this, things in our lives can be deceptive. They appear to be satisfying and lasting when they're actually temporary and unable to satisfy the deepest needs of life. Certainly God wants you to enjoy the blessings of life. There is nothing spiritual about sitting morosely in a corner and saying, these things will not last anyway. Why enjoy them? God wants us to enjoy his good gifts just as we want our children to enjoy what we give them. But, he says, he does not want us to depend on things. He wants us to depend 
on him. You know, this church in Colossae was, is a tr- kind of a church. And, you know, you picture yourself doing the jacuzzi thing. You know, what's your jacuzzi? What is that in your life? Think about that. This church in Colossae knew about this, this kind of way of going about the spiritual life. They knew about spending whole periods of their life drowning themselves in things so that they just wouldn't have to deal with the deadness or the rottenness. And they were tired of it. And so when Epaphras, this minister of the gospel, when he comes and they don't know anything about Jesus, it's brand new, nothing, they have no frame of reference for it except their experience of spiritual kind of wandering and searching for satisfaction. And so when this news comes of Jesus, um, they jump on board and many of them, they're baptized into a lot of the language that Paul reminds them of in this passage. That as they... As they hear about Jesus and the grace of God, they're hearing the, f- the final answer to all those longings and all the things they've been trying to look for. And the language comes really strong and says, you've been buried with Christ. You've been raised to life as he is. And you're now alive. You're made alive. Buried. Raised. Alive. That's the baptismal language. That's the language of going under the water and coming out of it and then being alive in a new life. Being really alive in a way that all those other things are just hints at, just glimpses. And that's been their experience along with uh, grabbing hold of that day in and day out in the context of community and prayer and scripture and reasserting that identity buried raised, alive. Well, as Paul's writing this, uh, this letter to them, I suspect by how he's writing that they, he knows that they're on the tail end of, of that kind of spiritual wave, you know, that, the high that they were on and the momentum of that initial experience of God's amazing grace. Because in verse 8, he says, um, no, I'm, yeah, I'm sorry, in verse 8, he says this thing about see to it that no one takes you captive and then what he says at the end is that those things they lead you away rather than on christ they depend on the human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on christ it's very clear that there's a a real need whether he knew this in all churches of all times or whether he had heard some specific things about what was going on with his church they're being led by led away by something new and fresh and titillating and it sounds great and he's saying back to the the original thing christ it's really hard to stay christian is it is a good way to put it it's hard to stay right down the middle in the christian faith stick to the same old message over and over again eugene peterson is a pastor and writer who put it this way in his book called uh, Long Obedience in the Same Direction. He said, Religion in our time has been captured by the tourist mindset. Religion is understood as a visit to an attractive site to be made when we have adequate leisure. For some, it is a weekly jaunt to church. For others, occasional visits to special services. Some, with a bent for religious entertainment and sacred diversion, plan their lives around special events like retreats, rallies, conferences. 
We go to see a new personality, to hear a new truth, to get a new experience, and so somehow expand our otherwise humdrum lives. The religious life is defined as the latest and the newest. Zen, faith healing, human potential, parapsychology, successful living, choreography in the chancel, Armageddon. We'll try anything until something else comes along. I think he's hitting the nail on the head, isn't he? He's, he's right. And the thing that's hard to grasp, uh, but uh, has to be thought of a little bit, is that on this way of being buried, raised, and alive, and this Christian path of grace, you don't ever graduate. Just think about that. You know, you, you know people who are about to go into their senior year of high school or college, and you know the tendency. You know how someone can, maybe you have at one time, you went through a year of just out-of-body experience. I'm not even here. I'm so beyond this, you know, senioritis, right? I'm ready to graduate. There's no graduating in the Christian faith. You don't move on to a more advanced message, something more sophisticated than the gospel, something fuller than your baptismal identity of being buried, raised, alive. It really takes a, a commitment, almost a tenacity to adhere to the same path, the same message, the same method of growth. It never changes. It's the gospel of grace. It's that you're buried. Your old self, that dead stuff, you know, what happens? Why do we bury stuff? You know, the, it ends the smell. It ends the stench. Buried. Raised. Revived. And alive. If you look at verse 9, you see how Paul goes, goes right to this, right to, to kind of express, like, why on earth would you long for the new thing to kind of add on or the new, better, more sophisticated view of Jesus or who he really is? When he says... For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you, I'm adding the tone of voice, I know, but in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. There's a sense in which, just think about that. Do you have some other path that gives you more than the fullness of the deity? I mean, that, the, all the fullness of the deity, and you brought, you've been brought into that fullness. That is the gospel. And I wonder, <clears throat> you know, when we're so eager to get on to the next thing that's going to make me feel alive, if we really know what we're asking for. Because, what, you know, what we do is we set up these other things and they become sort of an authority in our life. You know, if I get more, make a little more money, then I'll be in a good place. If my kids get in the right school, have the right education at, at every phase, if, uh, if I can just dial up the religious faithfulness, then God will be happy with me. If I, could, if I just find a spouse, then I'll feel alive. Or if my spouse would just change, you know, then I would be in a good spot. And what we do, basically, with anything like that, is we set up an authority. And when something it becomes sort of the authority on us becoming alive, it starts to press against us it kind of leans on us 
Or in the words of this scripture passage, it uh, stands against us, verse 14. And even you can have this, if you've set up a certain authority in your life, it sort of can put you in its debt in such a way that the pressure doesn't go away. And in fact, these authorities, they don't have the ability to pull away the pressure. And sometimes your own inadequacy amidst this authority that you've set up in your life begins to condemn you. It starts to be a, a sort of a place of condemnation you can find yourself. Well, now listen very carefully because Paul wants to say something in this passage about powers and authority of this world, kind of worldly powers and authorities that are not Jesus. He brings it up in verse 10, saying Jesus is head over them. And then in verse 15, he says he, that Jesus has, or what Christ has done for us has disarmed the powers and authorities, making a public spectacle of them. So hear this. The only faith system in the world, the only authority in the history of the world that works differently than all these other things pressing against you and bringing you to a place of condemnation, the only thing that works differently is Christianity. And it's gospel where God gives you life makes you alive by relieving the pressure, by removing the condemnation. You're made alive. It's a gift. And just about every other approach that we'll pursue, that we'll get kind of excited about and wander off with, nudges, just like in verse 9, just like Paul says, or verse 8, the end of verse 8, pushes Christ to the side. And it allows you and I to, to grab hold of a little bit of the credit on reviving our, the deadness of our hearts and getting rid of the, the death smell. I think Paul wants his listeners to know the uniqueness, the absolute, there's no comparison to what the gospel does in this regard. I mean, just in closing, what he also wants to show is the finality of the gospel. Do you notice the language, the kind of finality and definitive nature of the verb? Just looking at the verbs in this passage, put off. These are very definitive, final kinds of verbs. Put off, buried, raised, made alive, forgave, canceled, taken away, nailed it to the cross, disarmed, triumphed. And you don't get to put yourself as the subject of any of those verbs. That's grace. That's the gospel. Let me read those again. Put off, buried, raised, made alive, forgave, canceled, taken away, nailed to the cross, disarmed, triumphed. that's a lot of verbiage to say that God has done for you. That's a lot of meat behind the offer of this gift of grace. And uh, I wonder if you feel at all like you're at a place where you can settle to let that gospel, that grace of, of God alone, be the thing you look to to make you alive. Again and again 
and again for the rest of your life. You know, it's baseball season, so let's hear from a baseball player on this. Albert Pujols. I I actually don't follow baseball. I had to look up how to say his name. I'll just be honest right now. Albert Pujols, the first baseman for the uh, Los Angeles Angels. He's a World Series champ. He's an eight-time All-Star. He's a recipient of three National League MVP awards, and according to the 2008 poll of managers, he was the most feared hitter in the sport at the time. I don't know what he's like now. But even more impressive is his life off the field. The Pool Hall's family foundation he started offers support and care to people with Down syndrome and their families, while he's also helping the poor in the Dominican Republic. He's also a passionate disciple of Christ. And while speaking at an event at, at uh, Lafayette Senior High School in Missouri, Pujols told the crowd, one way for me to stay satisfied in Jesus is for me to stay humble. Humility is getting on your knees and staying in God's will. What he wants for me, not what the world wants. And he added this, it would be easy to go out and do whatever I want, but those things only satisfy for a moment. Jesus satisfies my soul forever. Now, I don't know how often you take spiritual advice from a multimillionaire baseball player with accolades and fame and accomplishments, you've got to figure there's a, diff- there's a certain dynamic of the struggle there that you might not understand. I, I think probably a titanic-level struggle with sticking to what he just said and not kind of banking his satisfaction in other things. But you and I have, it's the same thing. We have the same thing going on. Have you, have you given up on the searching? Have you found a reason to just stop the search for feeling alive because you are buried, raised, and made alive in Christ. Let's pray. God of grace, we pray that we would know those words and they would be true of us. Um, Help us as we journey in that together and as we find ourselves in all kinds of different places with respect to owning that kind of a identity. Help us most of all as we, um, we know our spiritual mess and as we try to fight it, not, only, not always knowing the tools and finding ourselves back at square one over and over again. Would your grace come to us, that same old message of grace that settles and satisfies our heart's deepest longing. We ask for your help through the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our time of 